And today in our fifth session, we'll be discussing white livelihood. The livelihood is a rather elevated or slightly antiquated term. And normally you wouldn't ask your friends, what is your livelihood? And you would ask, now what is your job? Now, this is basically meant by that. And we can imagine how important it is. If we consider how much of our time and energy we have at our disposal goes into our job, where we have to make a living with, we realize that it's probably the vast majority of our time and energy. So if our profession, our vocation, our job, our livelihood is unwholesome and is unsuitable for developing the noble path, then it will be very difficult to practice. On the other hand, if our job, our profession, our vocation, our livelihood allows us to develop the Eightfold Path and why we are working there, then progress will be very smooth and very easy. And for that reason, the Buddha has dedicated one out of eight path factors to this Noble Eightfold Path. This is one reason why I really like uh, talking about the Eightfold Path. It's a very comprehensive category. And the Eightfold Path is very suitable for guiding us in our practice, uh, even when we are not sitting in formal meditation, even when we are not uh, on retreat, staying in a monastery or a retreat center, or we haven't renounced as monks or nuns, but you're living out there in this world the way it is. But if you work 40 hours a week, and for many people it's actually more than 40 hours, and you can unfold the path factors in that job, then you have got 40 hours a week of practice. And that's the reason that the Buddha dedicated one path factor to this particular um, to this particular crucial part of our life. Interestingly, if we look at the definitions the Buddha has given, they're very short. He just says, what is white livelihood? And here a disciple has abandoned wrong livelihood and sustains his life by right livelihood, which doesn't explain too much. There's one list of professions the Buddha points out which are not suitable. Sattva, Sattva, Mangsa, Matcha, Visse. If we get involved with these five, now that is especially pointed out as being unsuitable. Sattva means living beings, trading in living beings. So obviously being a slave trader would not be right livelihood. But same with animals. I just read about the um, big ship which was stuck in WA 
with ten thousands of sheep which were exported midlife to Saudi Arabia, I think. And then the, they pointed out in the article that uh, the previous transport out of 50,000 sheep, 10 or 15,000 didn't even make it because now they just die from deprivation, from not being fed. Now they're just in the ship for however long it takes, a week or longer. I'm not sure whether they even give them any water or anything. Now this is not why trading in living beings, particularly any form of trade, that involves them to be slaughtered is considered a not white livelihood. I don't think it would apply to trading in pets when you give pets to people who are really looking after them. I don't think that would come under that. But all the trading in the abattoir, sending them to the abattoir and so on. Sata sata means sword, and by extension that is trading in weapons. And that is actually a very important one, and quite a few people are not so fully aware of that. And so if you work um, producing the software for ballistic missiles, it's not quite livelihood, because a missile is meant to, to attack and to kill soldiers, even civilians, and then any contribution to that would be wrong livelihood. There's actually quite a bit of jobs in the so-called defense sector. And uh, they're basically all unsuitable for someone who wants to develop a wide livelihood. Anything that is connected with killing, war and destruction, even somewhat indirectly, is not suitable. Amongst them, much only means uh, uh, meat and fish. So again, uh, uh, trading in ways that is involved with the killing of animals, whether it's cows, cattle, pigs, chicken, mutton, mutton is sheep, goats, it doesn't really matter. Any way of trading that uh, is connected with the uh, killing of animals wouldn't be white livelihood. And finally, whistle. Whistle is poison. You may be saying, who's trading poison? That's a very rare one. Unfortunately, it's a very common profession, trading poison. Do you know any poison traders, Harley? Have I met anyone who's working in a bar? Yeah. As a barkeeper? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Usually you wouldn't consider a barkeeper a poison trader, but alcohol is a poison. We have to consider, I think, at about 0-2, blood alcohol level, you can be quite seriously damaged. Once you have gotten a zero five, you're very likely dead. And people sometimes are happy to go to 50% of the lethal dose and call it a good night out. But alcohol is a poison. And even if most people stop maybe at half the lethal dose, it's crazy. 
So any way of trading in uh, alcohol and uh, uh, drug dealing, like uh, heroin, cocaine, crack, ice, and so on, this is all wrong livelihood because it's poisoning people's mind, it's also poisoning people's body. And some of these professions, when they look very sophisticated, and if you go for tasting wine in a very expensive wine-producing place, winery, a vineyard, that may appear in a very uh, sophisticated culture and so on, ultimately it's trading in, in poison. And uh, as a person who wants to develop the Eightfold Path uh, or a livelihood, and wouldn't want to be involved with that. We have to consider that in our job, we tend to do things every day for many hours, and the next day, you know, five days a week or more. And then over years, you know, people may be spending 40 years or more in a certain job. So this becomes habitual karma. And uh, habitual karma is particularly strong. Habitual karma is particularly likely to take effect when people die. There's a deep underlying tendency established from what we do habitually. So it's particularly dangerous if it is unwholesome. If it is wholesome, it's particularly helpful. Sometimes people asking me, uh, what is the danger that we get into the wrong thoughts when we die? Because they understand that our mind state, while we are passing away, is very important for the future rebirth. And people are worried about that. But if we are habitually, all our life, constantly make good karma, or at least uh, most of the time, one doesn't have to worry so much, because it's then very likely that that habitual karma will come up. And you notice that when you are in a job, usually your, your thinking, your concern, your worrying is so much related to that. So we can imagine that if the job is really wholesome, really good, that our whole heart becomes involved with that and thinks about that. Other than these five I mentioned, the Buddha doesn't give any clear-cut definitions about white livelihood, and we don't really need that. Why not? Because we have already the first four path factors. We have already got the teaching on white view, white intention, white communication, and white action. So it follows now quite easily that we should have a livelihood where these four uh, fit in and can be further developed. So does our livelihood support wide view? And what is one thing that is probably strongly influencing our views and opinions? The views and opinions of other people. Because uh, when you work with people, they chat with your mates, you will talk, discuss, you may go out even outside from the job. 
and whatever the views and opinion these people have, we may not agree with all of them, but over the years and the decades of working in that particular environment, and it will form us dramatically. And this is why we have all these kind of the cliches and ideas what people in certain professions are like. And occasionally these cliches will obviously be wrong, but the way that they exist is already you know, indicating there's something to it. And we can imagine, say, if you work in the defense industry, you know, producing weapons, even if it's somewhat indirectly, you know, only in uh, preparing some computer program or doing you know, the kind of metal, what kind of combination of metal is suitable for that particular rocket or weapon is still involved and the others working there will probably have the views that the producing lethal weapons is not really bad. That is one danger once we are in the wrong profession and if we're hanging out with barkeepers, pub owners, very few probably will have uh, the conviction that alcohol is a poison and that what they're doing uh, is selling poison. They probably say it's just recreational. Some people claim it's even healthy and uh, it's a good way for relaxing and makes you socially more open and so on. And before we know, know, over the years, we tend to take up this view So particularly if there's anyone out there listening who hasn't started their career yet, they give it a very careful consideration. What do people usually think about when they choose a job? It's about money, it's about reputation, and it is about whether one enjoys it and also in another one has the capabilities. I think this is the four main factors. Obviously, one needs to have a sufficient qualification and skill. If one has these skills, and usually it tends to be enjoyable. And then the question is, you know, how much money does one get and uh, what is the general status and reputation of that profession? All of that in terms of Dhamma is actually not so important. What is important in terms of dhamma, when you do that job, can you develop what is called wide view? Is that an environment where conviction into the effects of karma and rebirth, and convictions about the importance of purification of the heart, and the belief that it is possible to attain freedom from suffering, and that there are beings who have done that, like the Buddha and the great Abhans, where this conviction uh, is possible to even strengthen. What is important is to consider that if you go into this profession, can you develop a right intention? Is that job suitable to develop the intention of letting go of renunciation? Is that job suitable for developing the non-harming 
non-aversion, non-cruelty, things like nametta, loving-kindness to other beings. It's a job suitable to develop compassion, wanting to diminish the suffering of other beings. It's that job and is suitable for the diminishing the delusion in other beings. It's that job and helpful for anyone. Many people are only asking me what is the money I get and uh, how much fun is it and how many hours of work and how many uh, holidays and so on. But what we should ask, is it actually good for others? What I do in that job, do other beings benefit from that so that I can develop loving kindness, compassion while I'm doing my job? The intention is what determines karma. Karma will depend on our intention. So if I roll out of bed after the alarm clock and I, I hate my job, I don't really want to go there, and the only intention that I go is because I, after all I have to earn my money to pay the things I need. If that is the intention now, just to earn some money, is that lots of good karma? Not really. No? It's somewhat neutral. There's nothing wrong about earning money. But we understand there's not, nothing particular good karma. On the other way, if you... On the other hand, if you have the firm conviction that your job actually is beneficial for others, and now you go out in the morning, and your intention is not so much to earn money, the money will be paid anyhow if you do your job well, but your intention is to benefit other beings, then you're actually developing wide intention, the intention of loving-kindness and compassion and sympathy. And we can all see that if someone is a doctor or a nurse in intensive care, it's very obvious what they do for other beings. But it's also obvious if someone is just working for the garbage collection that may not have higher reputation, that may not have that much payment, but I think that whenever they go on strike, they usually all realize how important it is. So even if someone is doing simply in a garbage connection, one could do that with the intention to serve other beings. Or even if it's just some office job and one is sitting on the computer, let's say working in a bank, but the monastery has a bank account, how else would it work? Maybe you have to pay uh, the weights, you have to pay power and so on. And nowadays this is done via account. And so everyone needs that. So even if one is working in a relatively boring job, where one is just on the screen and typing in figures, that can be uh, of benefit for other beings and, and we should bring that to mind and we should uh, do it with that intention. Uh, we have uh, our treasurers here in the committee and there's a lot of work and it's very 
had for a very important, may not be the most exciting job, going through all the uh, invoices and receipts and through the balance sheet and then calculating that, was certainly of great benefit to the monastery and then one is serving whatever happens here in the monastery by doing that, even if it's a not-so-exciting accounting job. So I'd like to encourage everyone really strongly to, first of all, pick a job where you definitely know that others do benefit. And then one can use that even as a motivation in the morning to get out of bed. One reason is that people find it so difficult to get out of bed. There's no real motivation. If you have a job you love, and you love it because you know how good it is for others and how much great service you're doing to others in that job, you wake up with energy and you, you, you love going there. Actually, it's like, like Dr. Garmin in the year. He's not very keen on retirement and very advanced age, but it's not a unpleasant a duty and a, a burden. He loves going and working and helping other people, curing them. This is not what we want to achieve for our job, for our profession. That every morning we can arouse that intention. And then while we are doing the job, while we are sending emails, while we are building something with our hands, while we are cleaning, while we are cooking, whatever it may be, that we are bringing up the wholesome intention. And that's why we are doing it. And then we are constantly generating good karma in our work. And then we are getting paid as well. And we are probably doing quite a good job. So please choose carefully. Choose carefully. Find a job where you can keep the precepts. There's no killing, no stealing, no central misconduct like adultery or central abuse, no lying and no drugs or intoxicants. What we talked about in white action and the white communication, maybe not so many jobs and everyone has to outright steal and kill, but white communication is very important. It's more and more Professions know their communication is a huge part. And can you remember the factors of white communication? The truthful, it's actually one of the five precepts, in such a way that one is fostering harmony and that one is not dividing people by reporting even truthful things that cause rifts and conflict. And then where one can communicate with a kind, polite, gentle speech and a job where we can communicate meaningful, where we can communicate something that has got a point, that is connected with Dhamma Vinaya, so in that sense, now I'm quite lucky in my job. <laughs> and I speak, you know, it's 
relatively easy to do communication that is connected with Dhamma and Vinaya. But even in jobs and lay life, you may not be able to constantly talk directly about teaching of the Buddha, but is it at least something that is true and beneficial to others? If you contemplate that, you may notice there's actually not so many jobs out there which are really ideal for that. Now, what kind is the communication like in a, in a certain profession? How do they speak in a typical in a lawyer speak? A typical in the construction sites, where people interact and talk there. Or people who are working in charitable institutions or maybe in healthcare. I can notice there are quite some differences in culture. When you start, you can see that, you can choose. Once you're in there, after 20 years, it's very difficult to change. And by then, you have taken up that culture. It has become part of your Sakaya Ditti, has become part of our delusion of identity. And we internalize that culture. So hopefully it's a good one. And what is it like in academia in terms of you know, truthful communication, the other factors of white speech, keeping precepts, and different subsectors? And one thing which often strikes me is that the money is so important. Even in the census forms, because I'm not earning any money for anything I do. Although sometimes I'm quite busy, actually, working quite a bit. But when I fill out the every five years the census form, here comes the question about uh, paid, paid work. And if you get any money paid, then there's many, many questions about your work and what you do and how you get paid. If you only do non-paid work, volunteer work, which is unpaid, there's also something you can tick, you, know, you can tick that you do so and so many hours unpaid volunteer work, but that's all. And all these you know, refined questions, you know, they're not, not there. But many unpaid jobs you know, are actually a very good livelihood. I'm thinking in particular of you know, any uh, homemaker, housewife, houseman, and uh, Although in our society, unfortunately, my feeling is that it's sometimes not valued that highly compared to particular highly paid uh, jobs in the commercial economy. I think a homemaker is an incredible, wholesome job. And I think it will be very difficult to find a job where one can keep the mind wholesome all day with the task one is doing. Now, a homemaker, whether it's cooking or shopping for the family, whether it's looking after the kids, whether it's cleaning, preparing the home, now, all of these things are unambiguously wholesome and can be done without breaking precepts with uh, white wholesome intention. So we have to completely uh, re-evaluate what is a good job, what is a bad job, what is a highly appreciated one and what is a one which is not highly appreciated. If we apply the criteria we are talking about, you will 
notice you know, that some things where people earn a lot of money they may actually be only harmful to other beings. And they may end up as a big inhabitants of money they can pass on to the squabbling heirs waiting for it. Or you may pick a profession where you don't accumulate that much material wealth. But when it comes to going to the next life, you have accumulated a huge amount of good karma. And what is more important? I mean, as monks, we're also doing funerals. <laughs> and uh, when you talk about a funeral, usually you know, there's a speech you refer, you talk about the person who has departed. And what do they talk about at the funeral? Do they talk about you know, how much money they earned? And that already at age 35, you know, they had an income from you know, 250000 a year, and then they increase that and they give a long list of all their possessions at a funeral? Or what do you talk about at funerals? Qualities. And character qualities. Yeah? The yeah. kindness. Yeah. And if they had money, you may talk about the, how they use that money for charity. Then you can talk about the money. Then it's no longer ugly and unsuitable for mentioned for being mentioned at a funeral, if they use the money you know, for great charity, you know, that can be taught, or that can be mentioned. And it's all similar when we look back at our life you know, later, will we really be satisfied by having the accumulated just the material success? Will we really be satisfied if we have managed to elbow out competitors and trample on a few people that we get ahead of them and get the promotion and that we enjoy whatever and the power and fame. Is that something that really gives satisfaction later on? Or you have a profession where you remember how many beings you have been helping and benefiting throughout your life. And what is better? So to sum it up, the job is so important first because it's a habitual karma. We will do that now our whole life and habitual karma is so powerful. The second, that will be the majority of our time and energy which has to go into the job. There's no point of wondering about that. No, I don't have enough time to meditate. So we have to make the profession a part of our Dhamma practice. This is a huge trap. Please don't fall into that trap to divide your life between, oh, this is my job and all this unpleasant stuff I have to do. And then here's my Dhamma practice when I'm back home and I'm sitting in front of the shrine and meditate in formal meditation. And then there's this huge gap. And unfortunately, the time is sitting there in front of your shrine that is very little compared to what you have to do in your life. And there's not so much energy left, and maybe in the evening you're already tired from, from your job. So this isn't enough. And even if you go to two fortnight retreats a year, 
what is 28 days out of 365 is not even 10%. And the people often notice that, that they go into this retreat and, oh, wow, and they have some really good meditation, interesting insights. And then it all completely crashes when they go back into their normal life and they get almost depressed. Now, this is not the approach the Buddha gave us. He especially mentioned that now our livelihood, our job, our profession, and of course, now all other activities, which we may have to do, shopping, cleaning, and so on, driving, commuting, it all has to be part of Dhamma practice. The fact that the Buddha included our job as one of the eight path factors already points out that we have to integrate. It all has to be together. And we already kind of lost the plot if we just say, oh, no, this is just my job. It has nothing to do with Dhamma. And this is my spare time, my retreat, my formal meditation, and this is about Dhamma. That dichotomy is, is, is already a, a, a huge, huge defeat in our Dhamma practice. Instead, you know, whatever we do should be regarded as an opportunity to develop the Eightfold Path. You may not be able to always develop the Samadhi in terms of Najana and full, uh, full absorption Samadhi. But so many of the other prospectors can be done. So the same attitude when we go on a retreat, if we want to purify the mind, we want to practice really now, we should have when we go out for our job. And this is why it's so important to pick a suitable one. Or if you're already in a job, I mean, if you're 20, 30 years already in it, it's not so easy to completely change, but one can always steer one's career in a more beneficial direction. One can always maybe uh, not go for the promotion, but rather find a niche where you can actually practice and you get a little bit less money, you get a little bit less praise and reputation, but you find a niche where the practice works. And then you don't have this dichotomy and your life and your Dhamma practice is one thing. The Dhamma got to be your life. life. Your life got to be Dhamma. This is the way to develop the Eightfold Path. And if you come back in the evening then and you're a little bit tired already, it doesn't matter so much because you have already developed the Eightfold Path during the day. The mind is already wholesome. And then if you sit down and you have got only half an hour and even if you're a little bit tired, even then some good meditation is possible. And on the weekends or when you go on retreat, you can really make good progress in the very refined aspects of Samatha and Vipassana, which may not be able to be developed directly on the job. So really important to integrate Dhamma practice in your life. For some people, the Dhamma practice is something in their head. 
and over here is alive and it doesn't it doesn't come together. But Dhamma practice is something in, in full lotus, but not when I'm going through my normal daily life. That's not what the Buddha taught or what Ajahn Chah taught. Our life has to be Dhamma, and Dhamma has to be our life. And the f- fifth path factor, the white livelihood, white job, is pointing to exactly that point. I should open up for questions. Okay, Malik, Ajahn, how would you describe a monk's livelihood? Very important for a monk is not to have money and to be dependent on alms. That's all to be content with whatever is being offered by the faithful. That is the very basis of a monk's livelihood. And any teachings which are given are not given to improve one's livelihood. There would be a major flaw if I sit here now and I teach and I record that because I hope that then people may be liking my teaching and if they like my teaching then I may get more requisites and I may get a, a buggy to drive up the hill or I may get a nicer rope or I get a new phone. That would be a corrupted way of teaching. And so for a monk it's very important that all the teaching they do is only based on uh, compassion, loving kindness, to share the Dhamma for uh, the benefit that people can come out of suffering and uh, live a wholesome life. And that should be the intention. There should be no thought about um, whether they reciprocate that with more requisites. Or if there's someone who, who comes with a Rolls Royce, you, know, you walk up and open the door for them and you have got hours to chat to them. And if they come only on an old push bike, you just sit there and there. you have got only five minutes for them. And that would be corrupting for a monk. And of course, not selling anything directly. For example, uh, doing chanting and then producing the holy water and then uh, one liter holy water, 100 bucks. That would be completely wrong livelihood. And we should be having no possession, uh, no um, no money at all, and uh, uh, minimal possessions, as little as possible. A teaching should be given only out of kindness and out of a wish, karuna, that other beings can abandon their suffering. So far, a few things about a monk's livelihood. Ajahn, if a person's livelihood is to sell fish meat without killing or cook fish meat, can that be considered a wrong livelihood? No, not, not in my opinion. Not in my opinion, rather 
Now, because normally the way a killing is defined for the layperson, if you buy something in a shop, if you buy meat, there's no intention about killing in your heart. And the intention is only to get some food. So you have no uh, intention to cause the death of any beings. And similar, if you have a restaurant and you buy now in a bigger shop, now a wholesale, and even if you buy quite a bit of meat, now I think you're not really breaking the precepts. I can understand, I once had a person who was discussing that with me and he mentioned how many hundreds of kilos a restaurant would be needing every week and he didn't feel too happy about it. One thing which we discussed is whether his order, when he puts an order, whether that means the um, wholesaler is then based on this order having a certain number of animals slaughtered. But he was convinced that this is not the case. Nothing that one can argue that uh, there's no um, intention for killing involved. On the other hand, I can understand that people may feel a bit queasy about it and if you had a choice of livelihood, either running a vegetarian restaurant or running a non-vegetarian one, I think the vegetarian would be a better choice. But from my understanding, as long as there's no direct ordering for the killing and you're only dealing uh, with, with uh, meat which is already there, um, it doesn't seem to directly directly offend the five precepts. But uh, particularly the, the bigger the scale comes, the more one can notice another connection to killing, even if the intention isn't there and the, the connection is indirect. One problem, if you really start investigating that very closely, you will notice it's not so easy to find the absolute perfect job. That is one reason that the Buddha recommended the livelihood of monks or nuns. Because the fact that our material livelihood is totally dependent on arms gives us a freedom to purify our precepts to a very refined degree. With a job in the world, and sometimes you may have to strike some compromises. Not compromise in the sense that you're outright breaking the precepts. But there may be indirect connection. For example, what if you work for a huge corporation, and that same corporation is also producing alcohol? Maybe only 20% of their business is involving alcohol, and you are in the general administration. One can't 100% deny that there is some connection. What what if you are um, working for a huge corporation and they also have a a defense section where they're producing tanks or whatever? What if you're working in banking and the bank is giving a loan, a huge loan, multi-billions to a defense contractor so that they're building a new fighter jet. 
with the loan the bank is giving is supporting that. So if you start reflecting on that, it can be a very good exercise. And uh, we notice you know, that uh, it is not, not easy to make that absolutely pure and perfect. And so one will have to look into it in, e- in each individual situation, and then you try you know, to, to improve and purify it further. Yeah. Um, one thing all Australian citizens are required to have part of their pay go to super. Is it part of our duty to sort of look into where our super fund is spending that money? Because in a way we do make money from those investments. And I would fully agree in a very good question from Harley. I repeat it for everyone. He points out that in Australia... Uh, legally, you have to pay part of uh, for your superannuation, which then later, when people are old, are meant to cover their pension and so on to get some more money once they are old and retired. But of course, these funds in your super will be used in more or less ethical ways. And uh, because I don't pay into super, I don't know any details about that. But I totally agree. And it's the same with your money in the bank, generally. Most people are not aware of that. They think, for example, some people think that it would be great if I had 20 million, I win in the lotto, I just put it in the bank and live from the interest. But you also make income. 20 million, they can buy a lot. And the bank is giving that money out. And then ultimately, we benefit from the company paying the interest. And how does this company earn the interest? I do know that some sovereign funds, like Norway, the country, the Scandinavian country, Norway, has got a huge sovereign fund where they have been investing their incredible oil wealth in the North Sea, and they've been drilling and they have so much oil. And quite a bit of that they have actually accumulated the government for the time once the North Sea oil is running out, that they can use it for the budget. And I think they have certain guidelines about how to invest that money. They wouldn't invest it in, in certain things. Some people may be concerned about in terms of climate change, how harmful is it for the environment. As a Buddhist, you would be concerned with the money, how much is that invested into a defense and a war. So I fully agree. But again, I think you will notice that there's limitations. You will not be completely free what to do with your super. This is one advantage, really, of the holy life. This is why the Buddha said, as a monk or a nun, you can live precepts now as pure as a polished conch shell, the whitest thing you can imagine in ancient India. It's not so easy to do that in day life. But again, the Buddha gave us these five precepts as a basic fallback. So the main thing is make sure in your job that at least you don't have to directly break any of these five precepts and make sure that you're doing something where you can at least see this is for some benefit for someone and it's not uh, for harming others. 
is already not so easy to find. And uh, then based on that, no one can further refine. The precepts is something which one tries not to further refine throughout one's life. A very good question. Yeah. I would definitely say you know, how you invest your money, how you invest your super, you know, one should give that some thought because you later will benefit from that. On the other hand, uh, most people will never even think about it if that superannuation is used in some way which is not so wholesome. Uh, usually at least they didn't have any intention for that. And so I think that they're not really making much bad karma because there's no intention that they want to support that kind of thing. <laughs>